coming up later in the episode. But how are people experiencing you? What, you know, how do they feel when they're around you? Something that separates a manager from a leader is how someone makes someone feel. You know, leaders are those people who really influence us to be better people, who influence us to see parts of ourselves that maybe we haven't seen before. And so really get introspective about how you're having that kind of impact on people and how are people thriving and growing who are around you. This is Still Talking Black, a show about giving perspectives to issues that black people face every day. I'm your host, Richard Dyes. One thing that I've learned is that you never know who's watching you. Analyzing the things that you do, watching the steps that you make, listening to the words that you say, and whether or not they match up to your actions. You never know who you're influencing around you, who could be watching the way that you treat people or even the way you treat yourself. Dictionary.com describes leadership as a person who guides or directs a group. Leadership isn't a job title given to a person with certain qualities, and you don't have to be a CEO or even a manager to lead. Leaders come in all shapes and sizes, and whether or not you like it, we're all leaders. We all have the chance to influence the world around us and help make the world a better place. In the workplace, leaders are the ones that push the company forward. By that same token, they can also be the ones that hold a company back. As a leader, you have the chance to positively and negatively influence your environment. You can be the person who helps guide and influence others. You can also be the one that causes harm to others. When you're a leader, you're responsible for actions that occur within your team and organization. With that said, how do we become better leaders? That is the focus of today's episode. Figuring out how to deal with the added pressures of being a leader as a minority and also learning how to be a better leader. After the break, I talked to Shayna Hammond, founder and CEO of Lead for Liberation and Indigo Women, whose understanding of leadership started at a very young age when her teacher told her, even though she was quiet, she was still a leader. If you like what we're doing here at Still Talking Black, the best way to show your support is by liking, rating, and sharing our content. Buy a merch from our store at stilltalkingblack.com forward slash shop or donating using the link in the show description. Every little bit helps. Thank you for your continued support. My name is Shana Renee Hammond, founder and CEO of Indigo Women and Lead for Liberation. I'm a leadership coach and a spiritual life coach. All right. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about the journey and how you got to the place that you are now. Where do I start? The journey and how I got to the place I am. I usually go back to my first day of school. Hmm. My first day of school was actually in this small town called Pinckney, Michigan. Anybody who knows anything about Michigan usually makes a face like that. Like, what is that? So Pinckney is a very rural town in Michigan, about two hours outside of Detroit. I'm convinced we were the first Black family to ever set foot in Pinckney, possibly (laughs) the last. And my first day of school, I was only five years old. I go to get on the bus and all the white students moved to the edge of their seats. They didn't Mm. let me sit down. They called me monkey. They threw things at me. And the bus driver didn't do anything, just sat there and acted as if nothing was happening. So I spent the first day of school swaying up and down the aisle crying, not knowing why the kids didn't like me. You know, this was early 80s. And so my introduction to race in school was on the same day, that very first day. Um, And it never left me. Luckily, I had much better experiences, schooling experiences. When I later moved to Washington, D.C., when I was 10, I had my first Black teacher, and he literally changed everything. It was the first teacher to see me as a person, to even call me a leader when I had become very quiet and very kind of to the side. I didn't want to cause any you know, commotion or attention, and he really saw me. He was the first teacher to really see me, and I went into education because of that. I became a teacher. I became a principal very, very early on when I was only 25 um, and led a middle school in Baltimore, Maryland, then went on to train principals and noticed some gaps in leadership training. And the gaps I noticed were around race, diversity, inclusion in leadership practice, as well as emotional intelligence. Mm. And so I started Lead for Liberation to specifically address workplace 
and school culture gaps where there were students like me who weren't seen, who weren't included, who, you know, were made to feel like school just wasn't for them. And unfortunately, adults feel that way too. Yes, oftentimes. <laughs> and so I've dedicated my life to this work and I'm very grateful to do it. Wow, that that's a lot. It's a lot of achievements. Becoming a principal at such a young age. That that's amazing in itself. And I'm from Michigan. Mm-hmm. I still oh, am in Michigan. That's why you made that so face. So I made the face, like y'all can't see my face. I made a face because it's like I've heard of it before. I don't know exactly where it is, but you say two mm-hmm. hours from Detroit. That's that's far from me. And it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of amazing to to me. I mean, not amazing. I wouldn't use amazing, but it's kind of crazy that even living in a place in Michigan is really di- a diverse place. There's a lot of different kind of populations in Michigan, but there are certain mm-hmm. places in Michigan that me as a black man will not travel to. Really, I kind of you mm-hmm. know you you have to be. It's 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 sad that in this day and time you still have to think about where you go, even in a state. That is diverse as Michigan. So like when you were saying that, I really felt that because it started out with you at such a young age. And that kind of stuff sticks with you and it can do one or two things. It can either push you down and make you never open up or Mm -hmm. it can make you open up in a way that you may not if you hadn't had that happen. So I'm glad that it happened that way and that you were able to use that as a as a jumping off point to know that it shouldn't be like this. Let me figure out how to make it better. Yeah, I'm really grateful. So it seems like you have achieved quite a bit. So what what is what would you say your greatest achievement is thus far? I have to say writing and publishing my first book. I just published my first book this past January 2022. It's called Becoming an Indigo Women: How to Thrive in Leadership and Life. It was a healing process to write. It was very cathartic. It was very scary. (laughs) I ended up being much more vulnerable than I expected or had planned to be. Um, But I also knew it was its own spiritual practice in a sense. It's the backbone to the second organization that I started called Indigo Women, Mm -hmm. where it's a special place for Black women leaders from any sector, any industry, who are really looking for a place, a soft place to do professional development in a holistic way. So we blend leadership development, spiritual development, as well as personal introspection, because I believe as leaders, it's an inside out work. And it's really about your relationship with yourself first. And that impacts your relationship with other people and what decisions you make and what leadership roles you take and that kind of thing. And the book is all centered around the coaching methodology that I wrote that's called the R3 method. Mm. And the three R's stand for rebirth, reset, and renew. Mm. So it's all about a process for rebirthing, resetting, and renewing your authentic self. And so definitely that professionally is what I'm most proud of and just really grateful to be able to be to able to do it. That's amazing. That's an amazing achievement in itself, just being disciplined to finish a book. And so many people who start but don't finish. Mm-hmm. And as someone that is a creative, like hearing you say, it's almost like a therapy. Mm-hmm. Like, because I say like doing this is is therapy to me because you end up giving so much of yourself. And like during the process, you try to figure out how much of myself can I give? How much should I give? How much should I pull back? So like that isn't that is a tremendous thing. To, and that's a thing that you should really be proud of. And I'm sure you are. So, Thank you. So looking ahead, what what is the next big achievement that you are hoping to accomplish? I think it's really a part of that process was really catalyzed by a group coaching process that I've done a couple times. And it's called the Indigo Women Group Coaching Experience. And it's a nine week virtual journey mm-hmm. for, like I said, women from all industries and sectors And what I just keep seeing is just more and more women learning about that space, coming to that space, and literally that being a space where they can set themselves free, both personally and professionally, and just gain that clarity that they've been seeking and wanting for so, so long. The feedback that we have gotten from the about 60 women who've done it already has been absolutely mind-blowing and, you know, so life-giving. And my hope and prayer is just that more women join us and join the 
the community who's just waiting for them to be a mirror for their growth and for their ascension ultimately. Yeah. So you, so you build and now you're like, my next achievement is to grow this as big as I can. That makes, makes total (laughs) sense. That, that means you got a good head on your shoulder and you're really looking towards the future because you built that foundation. And now it's like, let's build on a solid foundation. Thank you. You've talked about black women a lot. And and that that seems to be like your 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 people like let's let's go like I have my focus. So how do you mm-hmm. feel that being a black woman has shaped your career? Oh man, in so many ways, especially being a young leader, you know, a young black woman leading people of all backgrounds who were twice my age, I learned very very quickly what my strengths were, what my growth areas were. I I learned very quickly how organizations work and function and how white supremacy culture permeates every single sector and industry. And, you know, for anyone who's a part of at least two marginalized groups, even one marginalized group, Mm -hmm. you learn very quickly what parts of your identity are accepted, which parts aren't. And I've gone through, you know, the same struggles many marginalized people go through around the pressure to assimilate, being tokenized, Mm. knowing you're being tokenized and trying to figure out, you know, how do I address myself being tokenized while also keeping my job? You know, how do I reconcile wanting to leave, but not having the financial means to leave? And, you know, just that struggle of not even just in the workplace and then going out into the real world, and facing all kinds of, you know, macro and microaggressions constantly. And my blackness and my womanness is very much conscious. You know, it's very much at the forefront and, of course, reflected back to me in different ways. And when I started 10 years ago, Lead for Liberation, I worked with all executives of all backgrounds. And I kept hearing more and more very similar stories from black women executives and black women leaders And it wasn't even enough to just kind of carve out a specific program. I was like, this needs its own space, its own container. On a spiritual level, I just kept getting the download that there's there's a need for just a different space, a different container and a freedom, if you will, to make it, you know, the space be whatever it needs to be for the women who we ultimately attract. And that's what it's been for the past two years I'm just really clear that there's a reason, there's a purpose. I'm here in this lifetime as a Black woman. Whenever I'm coaching Black women, the spiritual life aspects of my work seem to just kind of rise up on their own and very much so just kind of surface themselves in very natural ways. And the breakthroughs that I'm seeing in my clients, it's just unreal. And there's nothing that brings me more joy than to see Black people thrive. That's just everything I've done professionally. It's all the kind of common thread has been Black liberation. And I love Black people. I love being Black, you know, (laughs) and I just want to see us do well. And even when I think about You know, I often get the question, well, if you narrow and focus on Black women, do you feel like, you know, you're leaving anyone out? Anyone who does any kind of liberatory work knows that when you focus on a particular group, what you're doing is transferable to everyone. It can support and it will support everyone, Um, especially those most proximate to the group that you're supporting. So I know that by Supporting Black women, I'm supporting all Black people. Mm-hmm. And so that nothing to me brings me more joy and satisfaction and a sense of pride than that. That's beautiful. It, it's something that you said, and it's something that I've thought about quite a bit. It's like every time every time you're a part of a marginalized group, you get an extra weight. I like to say weight. And one of my episodes I talked about, it's called, the very first episode actually is called, Is It Because I'm Black? And I talk about the weight of carrying around my blackness everywhere I go to where mm-hmm. it's not just being, but everything is scaled up against. Is this have something to do with the color of my skin? Right. And I always thought that, you know, every time you add a layer to that, that's another way that you're adding. So it's like I'm black. And then you say, oh, I'm a black woman. Or and especially if you start to, to add other things into there, oh, like, a black LGBTQ woman. Exactly. Or 
it, mm-hmm. it's always an extra layer and there's so right. much to have to contain with, with that. So, so being a black woman in leadership, and then you say being a young black woman in leadership, have mm-hmm. you ever come up against any resistance to people that you, you were tasked with leading? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been like, what, 20 years almost now into the work I've been doing. Um, so I'm no longer 25, <laughs> but I, I've had so many experiences and so many different levels of resistance. And I think what I've noticed is the further I get in my leadership, the more subtle the resistance gets. Mm-hmm. And uh, also more biting it gets because it's so subtle that sometimes I don't even realize it's there until there's, you know, really strong, concrete resistance. Um, But when I think about resistance to what I've been doing, even when I think about how I started Lead for Liberation, I was very purposeful in not actually starting it as a nonprofit. And I received a lot of resistance. Hmm within my sector around that, because that's what you do. You know, you get a board, you get a 501c3, you, you know, go to the same funders and that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having, you know, a lot of friends and colleagues who, and watching them start nonprofits, specifically my black friends and colleagues, I noticed the level of resistance that they would get from funders and board members and pressure to really, you know, de- well, I say also sanitize what they were doing, mm-hmm. you know, and really kind of water it down. And I just refused to do that and decided not to go that route and also received resistance and getting, you know, into a couple of doors. Right. And there were explicit doors closed because I did not go the traditional status quo route of starting an organization. And so, you know, the 10 year journey has been met with lots of obstacles. Mm. You know, we've had our own financial obstacles. We've had staffing obstacles. We've also had a lot of triumphs. And I'm happy to say we've just, we're now in our best two years we've ever had coming off of our most, you know, (laughs) uh, challenging two years before that. Yeah. And I think it was just really trusting the download that I kept receiving from spirit over and over, like you're on the right path. I gave you a specific assignment, go do that assignment, you know, and that's how I've grown to live my life. And in the end, it usually, it does turn out exactly the way it's supposed to, but resistance is everywhere. I mean, everywhere. (laughs) It's so many different things. It's like men could be underneath you and it could be like, oh, you're a woman. I don't want to listen to you. Or, oh, you're black. I don't want to listen to you. Oh, oh, you're only 30. You're only 25. I don't want to listen to you. So, so many things to overcome. And it's like, look, I'm trying to work towards the same goal as you. I prosper, you prosper. Exactly. I'm so glad you mentioned those two. As you were talking, I was thinking about different memories of People of all backgrounds, you know, having a scarcity mindset, really, of like, there's not enough to go around. And I'm specifically thinking about, you know, times in different organizations when I was inside another organization and thinking that there's not enough room for, you know, the fullness of Black people to thrive in the organization and the gatekeeping that happens with us sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? And like, and how white supremacy culture creates this illusion that there's there's just not enough resources. There aren't enough, there's not enough money to go around, there aren't enough positions, only one person can shine at a time. And what that does to relationships is just really sad. Yeah, it's funny that you say relationships just because I haven't I well, I had another podcast about relationships. And one of the things that I've brought up in the past on that particular podcast is that if you're in a relationship with somebody and it doesn't even have to be romantic, if we think about just relationships in general, like our all of black people are in relationships, some some type of manner. But if you're mm-hmm. in a relationship with someone, a work relationship, you're leading someone, someone's leading you and you're trying to win. That intrinsically is a problem just because. If you win, that means somebody has to lose. (laughs) So it's like when we keep that mindset, like I got to win, that means that you're going to be doing things to make other people lose. And that's not the place that we need to go. 
Not at all. I call it the, so I call white supremacy culture, the sick collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. It is a consciousness that we unfortunately were all born into that does say there's not enough to go around everyone for themselves, whatever you need, take it and don't trust anybody. Mm. And we're all separate, which is a complete lie, you know, and like abundance says there's enough to go around. We can all win. When I rise, you rise, we rise. And there's just such a difference. I can tell a difference in the clients that I have the joy of working with. I can always tell immediately when I meet them what kind of mindset they have based Mm. upon how they talk about their role and how especially they talk about the people that they work alongside. That's a very interesting thing. If you really Mm -hmm. want to get to know someone, let them talk. That's (laughs) that's good advice (laughs) in a lot of things. If you're dating, if you at a job, just let somebody get somebody going and just listen. Just stop it's talking true. for a minute. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> listen and I always have, I'm leery of people who have a really tough time giving other people their flowers. You mm. know, those people who like can't compliment anybody. And if they do, it's like an underhanded compliment and they have to immediately follow up with some kind of criticism about them. Yeah. I'm very leery about people like that. And usually that's a scarcity mindset, right? They think that like, if I put this shine on this person, then that means I'm less than. I mean, it's just sad and it's very detrimental to, to relationships. Yeah, that, th- that kind of thinking goes back to, I got to pull somebody else down to be equal. But if you pull somebody else down, you're still in the same place. Still same place. You're still down, but you just brought somebody mm-hmm. with you, like rise up and then you can rise above, but... You don't have to pull somebody down to get up to another level. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> no. And we need each other to rise. Like I, I have not gotten to where I am by myself by any means, by any means. From the time the story I told about my fifth grade teacher to there have been so many colleagues and mentors and you know friends who have supported me and who continue to support me now. There's no way I could have done half the things I've done by myself. The black community, the community, the world, I, I just, we just, so much healing that we need to do just because we're so separated. You, you start to think about humanity is separated by region, by by wealth, mm-hmm. lack of wealth, intelligence, uh, background, history, uh, mm-hmm. culture, inside of culture, good hair, bad hair, light skin, dark skin, just, we're just so divided and we're still just one people. We are. And that's not, and that stuff isn't even of us. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> not, it's not who we are. It's a big lie. We are love. Like yeah. that's at the end of the day, we are love and love is expansive. It's inclusive. It's beautiful. And it's, it's growth based, you know, it's not even focused on separation or comparison or anything like that. All of that separation is white supremacy culture. And the more that we do our healing and really wake up to our own consciousness and separate ourselves from the sick collective consciousness, that's when we thrive. That's when we get rooted in our power. That's what I love seeing the women, you know, I'm with when they do that work and commit to doing it, of course, over and over and continually. It's beautiful. I mean, I love to see it. And I'm just hoping more and more people and I'm seeing more and more people carve out spaces, much like the one I've carved out. And it's not on, you know, by accident. I think we're in a stage of the divine feminine rising and really excited about all the healing that's on the way. Yeah. So, you know, representation is very important, especially in the workplace. You want to see people that look like you in positions that you're trying to get to. What do you what would you say some are some things that us as black people need to do in order to better position ourselves for leadership? I think we need to get really clear on what we want Mm. and remember that oftentimes the organizations that we're interviewing for that we might even be working for presently need us more than we need them. And it's really, really important to get clear on what our zone of genius is And making sure that we understand what that is and separating that from our zone of competence. So there might be a, you know, something we went to school around, a degree we have that, you know, has put money on the table and and that kind of thing. 
And that might not be your zone of genius. Mm. And so making sure that even before you think about representation, well, what do you want to do and what fills you up and making sure that that role is something that you can do in a way that will fill you up, you know, Um, because sometimes I think a lot of our ancestors you know, and they had much more pressure, I think, than we did to yeah. represent and to open up doors and to trailblaze. As our ancestors worked so hard and made so many sacrifices, I think we're in this kind of new space where we have a little bit of room to really think about now, what does it mean to thrive? What does it mean to both represent me and my community and my family and do it in a way that is expansive, that is ease, that is joy-filled. And those two things can be true at the same time. And while it wasn't true for our ancestors, I'm sure that's their greatest dream for us. Yeah, that's a great point. How important do you think it is to be intentional with what you want? I think about the biggest strides that I've made, whether in school, whether in my professional life, you know, for myself or in a nine to five, the biggest strides I ever made was when I was intentional about what I wanted. I looked mm. at a goal and I said, I got to figure out how to get there. How yes. how important do you feel like that is for the success of us going forward in, in careers and even as entrepreneurs? I literally had a conversation with a client about this today, this morning. <laughs> this was my breakfast conversation. <laughs> As you know, I was meeting with a woman who's in her own level up phase and she knows generally what she wants to do, but she's not necessarily clear on exactly what it is. She doesn't have specificity. And I will tell you from a spiritual standpoint, what I have learned is the more specific I get about what I want and I write it down and I set intentions around it, the faster it comes to fruition. Hmm. I think, you know, being clear on what you want and setting that intention and then talking about it and then being in motion with that intention. I think that's actually everything. You know, I'm a firm believer that there's, you know, there are forces way greater than you and I at play all the time. And the more that we can sync up with that energy, the more that we're going to be rooted in our own power. We are so powerful as a people. So, so, so powerful. And my my prayer, my wish is that more and more of us really, really root into that power, that ancestral power, that spiritual power that's there and available for all of us. Yeah. One thing that I really like to do is I like to make a goal. I like to look ahead see if it's a place that I'm trying to go. And I'll be like, all right, this is where I'm going to have to go. Mm-hmm. So so like if somebody's trying to get a new job, this is what I tell them. I say, look at the job that you want maybe five years from now. Mm-hmm. Look at the skills that they're asking for. What do you have? All right, what don't you have? Now mm-hmm. go and get those things that you don't have and position yourself for that position five years from now. Exactly. And that's kind of how I've always thought. I think of a big goal and then I think of stair steps. How do I get there? Yes. And, you know, you have to really be intentional. I had an episode about school and Mm -hmm. we were talking about how you need to be intentional about the degree that you get, because you can get a degree that's a soft degree that it's not going to be as useful as a hard degree, like a STEAM or STEM degree, like engineering or something that Mm -hmm. has to do with science, something that's that's going to make you a lot of money. So I also say that once you get in your career, be intentional about where you're going. Just because mm-hmm. you'll get into a place and you're the people, the company will have an idea of what they want for you. Right. And a lot of times you can float along and go along with what they want for you. And that might not be what you want for yourself, but exactly. you could get caught in a wave to where you're in something for 10 years and mm-hmm. you end up somewhere where you never wanted to be. And now you're looking back at where you wanted to go. And it's 10 years away now because where you were trying to go to that place you got pushed somewhere else. Now you're stuck in a place that you might not want to be. So being intentional is so important. That's so true. And you made me think about too, like, uh, you know, in addition to thinking about what you want, it's also really important to think about what you want to add to the organization that you're thinking about joining or the industry you're thinking about joining. Cause just like you said, they have an agenda What's your agenda? Mm -hmm. What are you looking to add? And what ways are they going to be different because of your leadership? Because you were there, because you showed all the way up. I think it's really important. 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer of you get what you give. Mm-hmm. You're not going to, if you don't put in the work, you're not going to get anything back. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, like whenever I go to a company, I want to make sure that I make myself as valuable as possible. I can learn everything that I need to learn so that when I leave that I made an impact there and it'll be felt when I leave. And when I leave, I've taken the lessons that I've learned there to somewhere else so I can start to rebuild again. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm totally with you. That was, that was a great point that you brought up. So for, for those of us in leadership, you know, mm-hmm. you talked up, you talked about it a little bit before. And sometimes you said being to- being a token, that's something that I, I think about a lot. Like, you know, it, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of when I was in college, like I had good grades. Right. And mm-hmm. affirmative action still was a thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even though I had good grades, it was like, mm, am I here to feel like, you know, the, the set amount of black people that's supposed to be here? Did I right. earn my spot? Do I deserve my spot? And am I smart enough to really do this thing? Yes. So, I mean, I don't think that goes away in certain places because certain places have like especially publicly traded companies, they have to have a certain amount of diversity in the workforce. Mm-hmm. So how do you overcome that imposter syndrome thinking that maybe you got somewhere because it's the opposite is true. Sometimes you feel like you're not somewhere because of your color, but then sometimes mm-hmm. you can feel like you are somewhere because of your color. Mm-hmm. How right. can you overcome that? Because sometimes it is truth. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it is true. <laughs> it is truth. Sometimes you are there and it's actually not imposter syndrome and you were there to fill a quota, you know, or they have a workplace culture where they put people of color in leadership positions, but don't really give them the power and decision-making power that they should have in that leadership position. And so then you're left to feel like, wait, well, is it me? Do I not have the qualifications? Am I not performing well? Where it's, you know, also a part of that specific organization's culture. So it's really important. There was a great article written about this and it talked about how, you know, we need to kind of stop focusing on imposter syndrome and focus on the conditions of of organizations and how they're feeding into tokenism and tokenizing people of color and tokenizing women of color in different ways by not really giving people the trust to do their jobs that they signed up for. And so there's, there's the, I always invite leaders to really think about both. Think about, yes, the growth that they need to, of course, prioritize and the limiting beliefs they need to release, and also to look at the workplace culture that they're in and whether that culture is actually a culture that is worthy of them. And that's a culture where they can actually grow and thrive because a lot of times the answer is no, and it might mean moving somewhere else. And the Mm -hmm. issue is not at all that person. You are qualified. You are extremely powerful. You are a huge asset. But this organization isn't positioned in the way to really be worthy of what you have going on and what you can offer. And it might be time to go to another organization. Mm, that's that's so valid. Mm-hmm. That I think about that kind of stuff all the time. And mm-hmm. like the, I think the way that I'm thinking about it now has kind of changed a little bit just because mm-hmm. no matter how I got in the spot that I'm at, I'm going to take advantage of being there. I'm going to get everything that I need while giving what they require, but I'm yep. going to get everything I need out of it. And, mm-hmm. and I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to keep pushing yes. until I can't push anymore. And then when I can't push anymore, I know that's when it's time to go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I mean, like in a way that's almost like, it's kind of like a backwards way of saying it, but it, in a way it's like black privilege. It's like we mm-hmm. we're like they're they're trying to tokenize us, but it's a privilege that we're getting into a place that we might not be as qualified for, or we are overqualified for, but they're giving it to us because that all we need to fill a quota. Take advantage of that because those people who have uncles and and, and different connections and oh, that's their mm-hmm. dad's golfing buddy, whatever that situation be, they're not apologizing for getting put into those positions that they may not may or may not deserve to be in. So mm-hmm. Now it's like, I feel like what, no matter the reason I'm here, I'm going to embrace it and not worry about whether or not I deserve to be here. Exactly. And it goes back to what we were saying about knowing exactly what you want. (laughs) And that's the power of it. Knowing who you are and what you want will keep you rooted. That is so powerful. That that's great right there. 
So what are some things we can do to overcome some stereotypes that comes with being black, especially like in a workplace? I've talked about this before. And it's it's like I think for me, it's like a delicate balance, because how much do you correct and educate? How much do you, you know, try not to take events and rise above? Because I I look at even every situation, Mm -hmm. you have to be way more calm and way more collected and way more educated and way more prepared. A lot of times to really be recognized, it takes so much more, like takes two times just to move the same amount that it would take them one. We got to do double. So how how do we start to overcome some of those, those stereotypes and and things as black people in in the workforce? I bring it back to, in our program, we really focus on first self-care. We focus on ourselves. And you just said, we have to do so much more. There's so much emotional labor that's required of us. There's much more energy that's required of us. There's much more strategic um, thinking that's required of us. I mean, we're playing chess Mm -hmm. all the time. We're constantly thinking about how things are perceived, how things, what the implications are for lots of different people. We're we're carrying a load most people aren't. And so because we're carrying a load most people aren't, I always start with us first. And so I think it's really important as leaders first and foremost to make sure if you don't already have one, you have some sort of spiritual practice or contemplative practice that brings you back to you brings you back to your consciousness. So before we even think about stereotypes, because those are also projections of other people onto us. And to me, that's always secondary. That's not primary. So first it's about us and making sure that we're doing everything we need to do to prioritize our health, our mental health, our physical health, our social health. Um, And so that's a huge component of our program is really getting back to self. Then when it comes to stereotypes and microaggressions that happen based upon those stereotypes, it's really about making sure you are checking in with yourself around what capacity you have to address them and not judging yourself or other people for how they address it or how often they address it. We don't always have the capacity, nor is it our job to teach anyone else what they're doing and the impact, et cetera. But what I do know is helpful for us is to make sure that we're advocating for ourselves and we're speaking and not self-silencing ourselves because, you know, white supremacy culture will have us in a lot of places, in a lot of ways, silence our emotions, silence our perspectives because we're so angry or we're so, you know, upset and we're not, we're overly concerned about how it's going to be perceived if we speak up for ourselves. And so some of us take it on, I know I did this a lot, take it on, internalize it. And then the internalization turns into stress, turns into health problems, turns into sadness, depression, you can go on down the line, right? So I'm always focused on us. And so First and foremost, it's about taking care of us and making sure we have outlets, whether it be, you know, girlfriends, therapists, where we can unpack these traumas because they are racial traumas that happen. We need some place to go to process that. I mean, it's really important to have that. And then in the workplace, we get to decide how and when we're going to confront those things. And which is why a lot of people... I know myself, you know, being really strategic about what leadership roles you decide to go after and making sure there are roles where you really will have decision making power that will make it a place where those kinds of microaggressions and things don't happen as much. And just again, being it comes back to being truthful and knowing about who you are and what you want, regardless of how it's going to be perceived. You know, again, I just always think about our ancestors and the greater pressure that they had. We all have it, but that pressure around, you know, what I do reflects everyone, reflects, you know, the Black community and that kind of thing. And what we have to think about first is, What's going to make us proud? What's going to make our children proud? What does leading authentically mean to us? And being at peace with that, regardless of how it may be perceived by others. I think about, uh, it comes up a lot in our program, the whole kind of angry Black woman stereotype. And if I advocate for myself, they're going to call me the angry Black woman. Mm -hmm. Then I call clients to, you know, well, let's unpack that. 
you know, in what ways is your anger justified? And many times when they explain the dilemma they're going through, a very human response is anger. And usually what's behind anger is sadness, is Mm. hurt. Usually in some way, shape or form, they have experienced a longstanding microaggression at work and it's been mounting and mounting. And any human being would express their emotion as anger. And sometimes that may be the emotion to express in that moment, regardless of how it might be viewed or packaged, et cetera. It's really important that we give ourselves permission to be human because so many workplace cultures, unfortunately, are destructive in that they work to strip us of our humanity. And it's really important that we don't allow any kind of environment to do that. I feel like a lot of times that it, it is easier said than done. But like I said, like we always feel like we have to be on our best behavior because any any slip, then we get put into another category, any mm-hmm. little slip. And mm-hmm. it's so unfair that like especially like the angry, angry black woman one is the thing that I think about all the time. I have somebody say like they want to call me an angry black woman, but don't Asian women get mad. They get angry. Don't. White women get angry. Don't Hispanic get women get angry. Every mm-hmm. woman get angry, but then we get labeled with angry black woman, right. and, and it's not fair. And it, and it just mm-hmm. it's like another level of elevation that we got to live up to this unfair measurement of of being somebody. And that's the thing we don't need to live up to that. <laughs> you know, that's not liberation. You know, I'm all about liberation and. There's no way that liberation to me is not expressing and feeling my full range of emotions just like anybody else. And I think the more that we really take the risk, because in a lot of places it is a risk. Mm -hmm. Let me be clear. It is a risk. But the more of us that take that risk to be us, to be human, the easier it's going to be for all of us. It will be more commonplace. And just the act of us being authentic will be the lesson in of itself. And so my my hope for us is that we less and less feel like we have to assimilate or mold into anything, but that we realize our power and we go to places to build our own tables, to build our own organizations, to build our own workplace cultures where everyone can thrive because, you know, the people who know most about it are those who've been marginalized. Yeah. I think, uh, I think what you said is very, very on point with, especially building your own table. And, you know, it takes so long sometimes to be comfortable. And I've seen this with different things and like a topic for another day, even just the way that I was analyzing the whole thing that has been going on. Everybody's been talking about it. The Will Smith stuff, the way that I kind of analyze his behavior uh, and uh, like, I kind of, I'm not, I don't want to get into the whole, the whole thing, but what I see from, from that and previous things has been that's resurfaced and whatnot is a man that's been trying to live up to being Will Smith. Right. And he hasn't, I don't think that he's allowed himself to just be Will Smith, just to be himself, but he's living up to, Will Smith. And as we see, you can hold it in for so long, but especially if you don't have an outlet, it's going to come out in a way that's not always going to be the most healthy way. You know, it's just going to come out. So not being yourself in an environment, if you feel like you're in an environment for so long, it's only so long you'll be able to hold it and then you're going to blow. And then it's going to be 10 times worse. And then everything that you've been fighting against, you're just going to confirm for people. That part. That's why I went back to self, right? It all comes back to how we're caring for ourselves and giving ourselves permission to be the authentic us. And um, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's just, and and it really is traumatizing. I don't think we understand like, you know, how traumatizing sometimes workplaces can be for people. And with sometimes we're even afraid to label it like that because it's like, well, it's not that bad and it could be worse. And it's like, no, you know, I have coached and, and so many leaders over the years who have literally been traumatized and traumatized by being dehumanized and not allowed to be who they are and really called out for being who they are, not recognized, you know, for their contributions, for their talents, for their gifts, constantly, you know, being undercompensated and not trusted to do their roles. Those kinds of things take a psychological toll on people. 
and it builds up and up and up. And if we don't do our work to really stay on a healing path, like you said, it could be very destructive. How important do you think it is for us to acknowledge traumas and and things? Because I I think a lot of times we try to avoid them and try to rub it off. I'm thankful to have a job. But, you know, like if you if you're not happy, like how important would you say as being a leader, especially being an effective black leader? And then you can add on any other things to that, like an effective black female leader, a young black female out at all. How important is it to be true with yourself about how you're feeling in order to be effective? Oh, my goodness. I have a chapter literally about telling the truth and how telling the truth is its own spiritual practice. And we have to be able to tell the truth to ourselves. And I I can tell you, um, and I've heard clients say this. I used to say this at one point and have this fear. I think for some of us, we have this fear that if we recognize trauma and that we are healing through trauma, that we're also saying we're broken or we're also saying that we're victims. And I'm not about to say that because I am not for victimhood. We are not victims. I'm a victor. And I get that. And what I really hope that we can embrace is that two things can be true at the same time. We can be experiencing trauma and not be a victim or in victim mentality at the same time. You know, and that's the complex one of the many complexities of being black is that you're kind of in this perpetual state of healing <laughs> while also surviving and thriving all at the same time. You know, like we're healing trauma past, present and future and we're also making sure that we're doing the necessary things to keep our eyes on whatever it is that we're going for. And so there's something I used to say, something around like, you know, acknowledging your trauma is not at all saying that you are a victim. And I think more it, when more and more people kind of separate those two things and understand it is not at all endorsing victimhood, I think more of us would choose a path of healing um, and be much further along. I think it was Adrian Marie Brown who said we're all we're both whole and broken at the same time, you know, and it's so true. We we are. We're very complex people. And just because, you know, outside world doesn't accept the complexity of us, we need to accept that first of ourselves and then of each other. Because, you know, it might be true. Maybe some people aren't ready for the complexities and depth of us, but we're ready. And it's just time to claim the full range of who we are. I definitely believe that. And we just got to be ourselves. Exactly. So we kind (laughs) of talked about it a little bit already, but you have a book, Indigo Women, How to Thrive in Leadership and Life. Yes. How would you describe an indigo woman? In just two words, I would say, well, a couple words, I would say a free Black woman. Mm. It's a woman who knows exactly who she is. And more importantly, she knows who her source is. She knows she's working on behalf of a a force greater than her. uh, And she's in constant seeking and constant reverence of that calling. And she is someone who is very empathetic, who is also very bold (laughs) and gives herself permission to express and experience the fullness of who she is. She's someone who puts self, who adopts self-care as a mindset, not even just a set of practices, but really takes her energy very seriously, understands that different spaces also need to be worthy of her and relationships need to be worthy of her. And she's in this state of constant healing, state of constant growing. And she's, you know, she's here to thrive and she knows it's her birthright. Hmm. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So wrapping it all up, what advice would you give black professionals striving for leadership or desiring to be better leaders? Hmm. I would say if you don't already have a practice of focusing on your inner self, I would say start really doing some introspective work around whatever that might mean to you. And I do really mean spiritual. I'm not saying religious or saying any one denomination over the other, but really just honoring your spiritual self first and getting still and getting really clear on 
what it is you're here to do and for whom. And then in terms of leadership, one something I've always said for many, many years, the most important leadership skill is listening. Hmm. And so really take time to listen to the feedback that you're getting around you from maybe your direct reports, from your manager, from your colleagues, your peers, and ask people, you know, how are you, not only how am I doing and what I'm producing, but how are people experiencing you? What, you know, how do they feel when they're around you? Something that separates a manager from a leader is how someone makes someone feel. You know, leaders are those people who really influence us to be better people, who influence us to see parts of ourselves that maybe we haven't seen before. And so really get introspective about how you're having that kind of impact on people and how are people thriving and growing who are around you. Wow. (laughs) That was really thoughtful and insightful. I think that kind of wraps everything up that we've been talking about in Mm -hmm. a bow. And you never really think about how much leadership starts from inside of you. Mm -hmm. And and it, it is crazy because I can think about it. It's harder to lead when you're not right on the inside. Exactly. And I have to give some shouts to Mr. Beasley, my fifth grade teacher, because (laughs) when I was in fifth grade and I, you know, was coming from that whole Pinckney and I was also in Oak Miss for a little while, that experience, and then moved to D.C. D.C. is my home, moved there when I was 10. And he, you know, I was a very quiet student. I didn't say a whole lot. I sat in the back. I was, you know, trained to not say a lot, basically, and to not really be seen and to be invisible. And so I was invisible, really tried to make myself invisible in his class. And he made us write in a journal, hmm. um, all of us, uh, every single day. And I am now a journaler, largely because of him. And I will never forget in my journal, he said something to the effect of, you're a leader. And I was like, leader? I don't even talk. I don't really talk to anybody. What do you mean I'm a leader? I'm quiet. And I asked him about it. And I said, why did you say that? And he said, Shana, I see what you write about in your journal. And I see how you treat people. You are a leader. And that completely shifted my mindset around what leadership means. And so that was very much, you know, informed my response to that question. You know, it, that never left me. I never, And it never left me how he made me feel at 10 and how that still has impacted me many, many years, decades later. Wow. Well, Shana, I just want to thank you for coming on. This was a great conversation. Of course. Thank you for having me. You can find Shana's book, Becoming an Indigo Woman, How to Thrive in Leadership and Life on Amazon. You can also find more about Shana at leadforliberation.com. I will include all of her links in the show notes. So again, thank you everyone for listening. Still Talking Black is a Crown Culture Media LLC production. It's produced by me, Richard Dodds. Our theme music was created by the DJ Blue. Please make sure to rate and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. You can follow the show on Instagram at Still Talking Black. And you can follow my personal account at Dodsism, and that's D-O-D-D-S-I-S-M. You can find out more about the show at stilltalkingblack.com, where you can find previous episodes, episode transcripts, and a link to the shop. So again, thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking.